It's a pleasure to be here with you once again. See all your familiar faces. There I am. There's the voice. So nice to be with you. I'm very happy to have my mom here this morning with me. She's from Toronto. She's 86, and uh, she's had some very serious health issues throughout this past year, and so I am thankful that she's sitting here this morning with us. Thank you. I heard that today is uh, National Hug Day, so if you need a hug, okay, everybody hug your neighbor. Or something. <laughs> well, maybe that's not such a good idea. I don't know. <laughs> turn to your left. Turn to your right. Well, today I'm speaking to you uh, about Old Testament theology, and it'll be about 50 minutes. <laughs> Just joking. Okay. <laughs> Wanted to see how fast I could clear a room. Eh? <laughs> anyway, let's pray. Let's uh, begin this morning with going to prayer before we go to the Word. Bow your heads with me. Father, we live busy lives. You know that. But you call us to come to you in the midst of them. You call us to Times like this, when we're to set aside the things that are urgent, to rest in that which is necessary, your presence, your word. We pray that uh, you would feed our faith this morning, that we may starve our doubts concerning your great love for us and your faithfulness to us. We ask this morning that you would teach us, that you would open our hearts, that our hearts would be pliable to the truth that we're going to hear and that we would apply it to our lives. So Holy Spirit, speak through me and encourage these people. Correct and rebuke and encourage and all those things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Who's uh, somewhat prepared for Christmas? Christmas shopping started halfway. You're done. Okay. It's not looking too good. All right. Well, we prepare for a lot of things in life, right? We prepare for a lot of things. We prepare for going into the uh, workplace, for school, and for college. We prepare for marriage. We prepare our kids to live God-honoring lives, at least we hope. We prepare for retirement, and we even make plans for our funerals and the eventuality for our own deaths. You know, the ancient Egyptians uh, also... um, plan for these things, but they went beyond planning for their deaths. They, they planned for eternity, too, as they understood it. And like many cultures, they, too, were concerned about the afterlife. And in the pyramids they built, they buried their loved ones. That's right. And along with them, they buried valuables. Uh, they buried food and things such as that because they believed that they would need them in the afterlife, in the next life. And this is interesting because when we come to the Bible, in it we'll read that the most pressing, the most important thing we could ever prepare for and should be preparing for is our inevitable future meeting with our Maker, our God, our Creator, who came to us in the form of His Son, Jesus Christ, and who will one day soon return. And that's a big deal, wouldn't you say? It's huge. In fact, the Bible says it is so big that there are hundreds and hundreds of passages 
that are directly related to this topic of the first and second comings of the Lord Jesus Christ. And whether we go into eternity before he comes to get us at the rapture, our hearts and lives need to be ready, need to be spiritually prepared to see him and meet him, Almighty God. And that is what today's passage in Matthew 3 is all about. And uh, so the uh, passage is going to be put up on the screen here. And I'll read it, looking at Matthew 3, verses 1 to 12. John the Baptist prepares the way. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem to all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Wow, there's a lot there. There's a lot there. We're going to unpack it. You all ready? Okay. And so this passage is about preparing ourselves for the reality of God's entreating of our hearts in the here and now, so that, so that we may have a unique quality of peace mark our lives. Not necessarily peace with our neighbor or uh, peace in the workplace or uh, even peace with our enemies or world peace, but peace with God, with Almighty God. Recalling the words of the angels to the shepherds in the Christmas story, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to those on whom His favor rests It's a peace, then, that's not a given, even though it is available to all. But just what does it mean to have peace with God? What does it really mean? We use that term a lot, but what are we talking about? Well, it's a peace that ultimately assures us that we will not have to face God's condemnation. And I like that, and you like that. That's a great thing. But that we can stand righteously before Him when He judges our lives in eternity because we'll all go before Him, right? It's a peace that assures us of God's care for our lives, a peace that guides and guards our hearts. It's an inner peace that's not dependent on outward circumstances. We like that. A peace that surpasses all understanding, says Paul in Philippians. This is a peace that Jesus, as the Prince of Peace, promised to give us. We all want that kind of peace. And living in this ever-darkening and chaotic world, we are in desperate, we are in desperate need for this kind of peace. 
As we go back to our text this morning, we're looking, as I said, at the, 12 first, uh, the, the first 12 verses of Matthew 3. And the passage takes us back to first century Israel. And in terms of a little background here to the passage, notice how, uh, could we put the passage back up on the screen? Thank you. Um, notice how in chapter 3, verse 1, uh, Matthew starts with these words, in those days, in those days. What were those days? Well, they were days when Israel's promised Redeemer, or Messiah, had yet to make an appearance. And God's people, the Jews, kind of kept looking at the horizon, right, of God's promises. Where is Messiah? Where is Redeemer? He hadn't shown up yet. Uh, his people had already been waiting a couple of uh, thousand centuries. And remember as well that at least 400 years had passed since there had been a prophetic voice in the land. 400 years. Silence. Malachi's ministry was a very uh, distant memory. And so the Jewish people were very discouraged, very discouraged when they look around, they see the Romans overpowering them, and they're not free, and God's promises remain to them unfilled. But now, Isaiah 9-2 prophesied, a great light indeed was dawning, and in Jesus, Israel's Redeemer and Messiah has, 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 last, has at last come. He had come. Although Jesus' incarnation happened some 30 years previous, only now was his public ministry about to take flight. And uh, that leads us into the principal character of our passage this morning. And he's a man that most of us, likely all of us, are familiar with, and that is John the Baptist, or as he was originally known as John the Baptizer, before the typesetters of the Bible and those who put the Bible together aligned his name with a certain denomination. <clears throat> you know what I mean? <laughs> he might fit in really well here. I don't know. But he was a zealous, brim and yeah, fire and brimstone, over-the-top sounding kind of desert preacher who lived on honey and bugs. Yeah, honey and bugs. That's quite the diet. Yeah, he can keep it, right? John was uh, what was called a forerunner, or one who ran ahead of the coming Messiah, announcing and attesting to the truth that the Christ had arrived in the person of Jesus. And John's message to the people of God wasn't a laid-back one like, for example, you know, everybody just cool out. Everybody just rest easy. Let's, let's party. Messiah's on the way. You know, worry no more. Let's just have a great time. No. John's message had a sober tone to it. It was prepare for the coming Lamb of God. And you get the impression from the Gospels, at least I do when I read it, uh, that John the Baptist was the kind of guy we actually wouldn't have felt very comfortable around. You know, it was said of Charles Wesley, one half of the dynamic Wesley brothers, duo of theologians and hymn writers, the other being John, but it was said of Charles Wesley that he was a man of such holiness that whenever people were in his presence, they felt convicted of their own sin. That's right. Because the Spirit of God was so powerfully present and at work in Charles Wesley's life. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being around a person like that? Well, I think the same could be said of John the Baptist. 
The Lord Jesus himself said, right, there's, there's no greater person is it in Israel, in the nation of Israel, there was no greater man. Jesus said that of John. Why would the Lord say such a thing about John? Why did he pay him, John, the, the ultimate compliment? Well, I'm sure it wasn't because John was uh, Jesus' favorite cousin or anything like that. Neither do I believe it was because John the Baptist was living this aesthetic lifestyle and Jesus was really impressed. No. Jesus had good reason for calling John the greatest Israelite among the people of God. John wasn't the forerunner of the Christ for no good reason. John's secret to his spiritual success, as we might call it, had everything to do with his righteous standing before God. Remember, uh, when Elizabeth met Mary, uh, the minute that uh, the baby, John, in his mother's womb, Elizabeth's womb, heard Mary's voice, he leapt for joy. The Holy Spirit was present in his life even then. I mean, there were good things that were going to happen for this man who would grow to fear God. And so he stood as a man, John the Baptist, who was preparing to meet his people's Redeemer, his God. And because of that, because of that, he was a man at peace with God and obedient to the calling God put upon his life. And you know, John wasn't just, just yearning for, right? He wasn't just expecting. He was also preparing for the coming Messiah. And more than that, as our text indicates, he was also preparing God's people for the coming Messiah as well, for the emerging ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so John the Baptist's life then becomes for us a sort of model for the Christian life, right? For God's people, for the church. Because to be preparing for the return of our God and our future encounter with him is to live at peace with him in the present and to experience the benefits of that peace in the here and now. And so as God's people, as uh, as, as we live under as, as people who live under the accountability of God's word, how do we obtain this peace if we don't have it? How can we be assured that we have it? How do we experience it? Well, Matthew 3 tells us, and I want to lay this out for you quickly in a way that is not just a reiteration of Christianity 101. Now, there's four truths. Let's say there's four truths. We're going to try to get through these very quickly. There's four truths from this text. We could call them must-haves or requirements that kind of underline how we can be sure we are preparing to see God, whether we go to be with Him before He comes to us, so that we may have an abiding peace, His peace to guard and guide our lives all the way into eternity, and as we said, we're in desperate need of And we begin where John the Baptist began in Matthew 3, and that is with repentance. Now, when we say the word repentance, another word is always implied, and that word is sin. Repentance, sin. And looking at Matthew 3, we see that John spoke plainly about the hardening effects and and, and consequences of sin. John had only one sermon topic, okay? He had only one sermon topic, and that was repent. People were to prepare for the coming Christ by repenting. How would you like to hear that sermon every Sunday? What's that? You want me to talk to Paul for you? Okay. Just repent, repent, repent every Sunday. And the application section of his message was lived out through a baptism of repentance. And in verse 2 of Matthew 3, John teaches the, the absolute necessity of repentance before anyone can be saved. 
On top of that, he preached that repentance must somehow show, right? That it must be proved on the outside by outward fruit. And John warned some in his audience not to rely on any religious privileges or positions or outward piety or even on one's spiritual heritage as a basis for declaring themselves righteous. Now, John doesn't say this as such, but make no mistake, this is what he is saying. And who was John speaking to when he inferred all this? It was to a group of Sadducees and Pharisees who were looking on, right, two prominent religious bodies within Israel who carried a lot of authority, more so the Sadducees than the Pharisees, who weren't as respected as you might think they were. Look back with me to Matthew 3. We're going to go back to Matthew 3, verses uh, 7 to 11. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Brood of vipers uh, was one nasty term. Jesus would use it as well to describe the Pharisees. I think the term must have run in Jesus and John's family or something. I don't know. But by using the term brood of vipers to describe the religious leaders of his day, John was quite literally calling them something akin to deadly sons of serpents. You, you deadly sons of serpents. It wasn't a term of endearment, okay? <laughs> um, vipers were thought to be evil in the first century. Actually, for long after that. But vipers were thought to be evil, and their venom was highly poisonous. There, uh, there, there was no cure for it. And so they stayed in the outlying areas and the deserts, and they snuck around the brush, and, and then they'd creep up on you, and if they bit you, you were toast. By calling them a brood of vipers, John was telling the Pharisees and Sadducees that not only was their righteousness found wanting, that's bad enough, but they were actually dangerous and life-threatening in terms of the venom of their leadership. Now that's an indictment. They were leading the people of God astray because you know they were darkened in their own hearts and their own understanding of God and His law. And so how could they be worthy spiritual guides? This is what John was saying. And notice how Matthew doesn't tell us that these religious leaders were actually there to be baptized or that John actually baptized them. And that is because John's baptism presupposed repentance. In other words, if a person was outwardly penitent, if they were confessing their sins, as Matthew says here in verse 4, with an eye on changing their ways then they were to be baptized, right, as a symbolic preparatory measure to ready them for the coming of the Christ. Uh, but I think the prophet in John could see through these guys. He was like, you guys are either spying on me, you've come out here to either spy on me, or you're trying to look good by coming to where I am, where I'm baptizing. But you're not here to be baptized. You guys aren't even ready to be baptized. You haven't repented. Right? You haven't repented. Repentance in the New Testament, incidentally, means more than one uh, one simply exhibiting sorrow or verbally confessing that they did something wrong. It means to change our mind about sins. It moves 
the spiritual into the mental and into the will of human beings. In other words, true repentance is, I will no longer, I will no longer intend to sin like this or like that. I will no longer intend in my will, in my heart. And that idea of turning from sin, changing our mind about sin, is also echoed in the Old Testament. Whenever the Lord or the prophets summon the nation to return to God and turn away from wickedness, that's repentance in the Old Testament. Number 16.5 says, Everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness, must turn away repentance. From Genesis to Revelation, God is calling sinners to repent. Sinners like you and me, He's calling us to repentance The entire Bible talks about repentance and practicing a lifestyle of repentance as preparation or as a means to possessing peace with God and experiencing the peace of God in tangible ways. And in our text of Matthew 3, John also taught that our lives are to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. The words in keeping are one in the Greek text, and that word is akios, and it means two things. It means comparable, and it also means of equal value. In this case, it means of equal value. In other words, the quality or the worth or the value of my repentance should match the change in my life after I've repented. It's of equal value. It says, uh, you know, as, as we continually repent of our sins, big ones, small ones, short ones, tall ones, skinny ones, fat ones, and turn from them that we will in turn be able by the Spirit of God to produce the kind of of righteous life that God intends for us. The old saying is that repentance and sin go together like oil and water, but repentance and spiritual fruit go together like peanut butter and jelly. So what is required of us in order to prepare our hearts and lives for the reality of God's entreating of them? Well, one aspect, John tells us, is heartfelt, authentic repentance, which leads to our possessing peace with God and experiencing peace with God in the here and now. That's, the, that's kind of the first vital truth we want to see. Another requirement, another truth, is that we must receive Jesus Christ as our Savior. And the church says, yeah, that's academic, we get that. Yeah, but the world doesn't, right? John was calling people to repent but not just for the sake of merely repenting, but in order to prepare for the coming land of God and Israel's Redeemer who was bringing the peace of God with him. And, you know, when we think of the peace of God, right, we can't access it on our own, right? There's no, there's no button that we can push to get the peace of God. There's no amount of good works will secure it for us. No amount of going to church will give it to us. We can only apprehend it through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's all that the Apostle Paul was saying in Romans 5, verse 1 and 2. Romans 5 and verse 1 and 2. Uh, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Listen, Paul found joy and peace while in a Roman prison because he was not just in prison. He was in Christ while he was imprisoned. Isn't that a beautiful picture? It certainly is. And so if we're lacking peace today, listen, if we're lacking peace today, we may not possess peace with God. Maybe not, but maybe so. We may not have come to that place where we've truly trusted and received His Son by faith so that we may experience His justifying grace and peace 
in our hearts and in our lives. It's not the good person who's ready to meet God, right? It's not the person who doesn't miss a week of church. Uh, it's not even the person who has faithfully taught Sunday school or sang in the choir all their life who's ready to see the Savior. It's the person who possesses peace with God because they've realized their need for trusting in His Son for their salvation. And that's what John the Baptist would tell anyone who would listen. And that's why John in verse 11 announced that one more powerful than he, that is Christ, was coming on the scene. And that was quite a heads up to the people in first century, um, in the first century, especially to the Jewish person, right? That was quite a heads up because John the Baptist was revered in Israel. He was revered in Israel. He was, you know, he was the kind of guy that when he spoke, people listened, right? And they may not have liked what he had to say, but they listened. When he spoke, his words meant something. And yet, uh, John also knew that he was just a servant. He was just a servant. He was just a forerunner of the Christ. Though Jesus paid him the ultimate compliment, John didn't let it go to his noggin, right? He didn't let it go to his head. He said, you know what? I'm no great shakes. I'm really a nobody. I can't save anybody. The real king was coming. John was not a rival of Jesus. Right? He didn't set himself up against him. He wasn't competition. Like other religious figures and leaders in the land, John too was gaining followers. Lots of rabbis did. But the difference was that John was pointing his followers to Jesus. Right? He was pointing them to the Lord. In fact, at one point, John said with grace and humility, I must decrease because he, Jesus, must increase. I must decrease because he must increase. Let me tell you, uh, on good authority, you won't hear too many pastors talking like that today. My church must decrease so that the one down the road can increase, right? <laughs> you won't hear that too often, right? At all. But John, John had an eternal outlook or perspective, right? He was humble. He knew that his place and his role in the kingdom of God was as the forerunner of the Christ. He, John, was okay. He was okay with being the postman. <clears throat> Jesus was the mail the people were waiting for to get delivered, right? John was the one whom Isaiah prophesied was to prepare the way for the Lord and make straight paths <clears throat> for him. That phrasing, by the way, came from when the ancient kings and other monarchs traveled to faraway nations and lands. Before they did so, the roads that they would take needed to be prepared because don't forget, there was no pavement back then. There was a lot of gravel and rocks and, and things like that. And so the roads needed to be improved so that uh, the king's royal carriage and his entourage wouldn't fall in a ditch and such like that. You didn't want that happening to a king because he might have you executed and all that kind of stuff. So the roads had to be improved. So John was getting out of the way in order to make a way for Israel's long-awaited royal like none other king and redeemer. John's job was to prepare the people by clearing away any moral and spiritual barriers for the coming Messiah. He says back in verse 11, just going back to the text again, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John's baptism was typical of what happened in Judaic religious life. Baptism was used more as a ritual means for washing away uncleanness, especially where Gentile conversion was concerned. And so John's baptism was just that. It was with water, right? It was an outward action, 
that pointed to a deeper reality and need that would be fulfilled in and through the coming ministry of Jesus. That said, repentance and forgiveness of sin through faith in Christ are not the only things necessary for preparing us to encounter God and have his peace. Even though we need both of them, we need something, or should I say someone else. And this is the third point, the third truth, the third vital truth we need to get is that John's message teaches that we must also have the life-saving and eternity-altering Holy Spirit within us. Once again, uh, we'll flash up the Ephesians um, passage for me. This is the Apostle Paul. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed. You were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who was a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of His glory. If you ever worry needlessly, and I say needlessly, if you ever worry needlessly that you can lose your salvation, you need to commit that scripture to your memory. Because that's what it's saying. You cannot. Right? When we repent of our sin and put our faith in Christ as our Savior, the Spirit of God takes up residence within our hearts and lives. God comes and makes His home in us. He puts up His feet. right? And what does He do? do through His Spirit, he, he, he seals this deal with us that we belong to Him and His presence and power belong within us. And that is something that He will never take back from us. Amen to that. This spiritual transaction not only makes us spiritually alive, but it prepares us to enter eternity after we die. It also causes us to possess peace with God and to experience that peace in powerfully amazing ways in the here and now. I want to tell you about a gentleman I spoke with a few weeks back who was preaching at this church in the city. And he's attended this church that I'm familiar with. And uh, he has a tremendous gripping testimony and ministry. He was born in Iran. And uh, he became a follower of Jesus in his younger years. And he also had a ministry to his fellow native Iranians. And he was sharing with me how he challenged a young Muslim woman from his homeland many years ago, he had known, for a while, to uh, read the Gospel of John with him. And initially, she just rejected the idea. Actually, she rejected her own faith of Islam, and she rejected Christianity, what she knew of it, as well, and she was ready to take her own life. She told him that she was ready to, to die, to burn a Quran and burn a Bible and end her life right on the spot. And uh, she was troubled by many things. She had no peace in life and she felt that God couldn't possibly exist. But after a period of resistance, she agreed to read the Gospel of John with this fellow, her friend. And so they began to read through the Gospel. And when they came to the crucifixion, this, this woman cried out, you see, he's dead. He's dead. They killed him. Why go on, she said. But this man who was reading with her said, keep going. Keep going. The story's not over yet. She replied, no, no, no. He's like every other man. He lived and died and I have no hope and I want to die. Please let me die. And so the man continued to plead with this young woman to stay alive long enough to keep meeting with him and keep reading. And so they did. And when they came to the passages about the resurrection and, the, and then Jesus appearing to his disciples afterward and his promise to return, her face would light up and she said, I never heard, 
I've never heard about these events like this. Is Jesus really alive? Is this really true? Yes, this man said. He lives and he is Lord and he reigns and he wants to reign in you and give you peace. And then this man asked the woman, do you want this peace? Do you want everlasting life in Jesus? And she replied, yes. Oh, yes, I do. I do. And they prayed and she was born again. That's just part of the story. The same woman during a war was shot several times and was left for dead. But she lived. The doctors were amazed at her recovery. They never expected her to survive from her injuries, from the bullets that that, uh, ripped through her body. What's more is she became a pastor to a church that met in a private area. She led every member of her family to the Lord despite receiving daily death threats. She would say over and over again that she could not believe the amount of peace she felt through all the trials she faced, even after becoming a Christian. This couldn't have happened, my brothers and sisters in Christ. None of this could have been possible if the life-giving and peace-delivering ministry of the Holy Spirit was not within this woman. Lastly, and very quickly, I want you to come with me to the last few verses of Matthew 3, 1-12, looking at verse 12. Actually, we'll just look at the last verse. John says, His winnowing fork, he's speaking about the Lord Jesus, is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. You know, Jesus is very clear in the Gospels that not everyone is going to make it to heaven. In our text, John had been speaking plainly about repentance and sin and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and now he finishes off with speaking plainly about the dangers of resisting Christ, refusing Christ, and remaining in unbelief. This is our fourth and vital truth. I'm going to whip through it. Thank you for being patient. Hopefully the church doesn't need to be reminded of this, but the world certainly does, that there is a hell to be shunned right, and a heaven to be gained. John here was saying that it is no light matter whether the sinner repents or not. John used terms such as chaff and unquenchable fire to teach that there is everlasting consequences and punishment for the unbeliever, for the one who rejects Christ. Listen, I don't like to say that. You don't like to hear it. But this doesn't diminish the fact that that is truth. You know, we like to quote John 3.16 to non-believers. We really, when we do, we really should quote another uh, passage some uh, 20 verses after that reads, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains upon him. And if, God, and if God's wrath remains upon us for eternity, we have no hope for peace for eternity. You know, we quote a, a verse like John 3.16, but John 3.36 is just as important to know. It's like a good news, bad news scenario, right? It's one thing to talk about a cure, but we could never appreciate that cure if we didn't know what would happen to us if we remained in our disease. And that is our sin. Are you prepared this morning to meet your God, your Creator? Whether he comes to us before we go to him, are we ready? Are you at peace with God's Son? And do you experience that peace in tangible ways in your life? I hope you do. Whether we are a Christian or a Muslim or a Sikh or a Buddhist, 
Everyone, regardless of their religious leanings and belief system, will bow a knee to Jesus and confess He is Lord. The question Matthew 3 poses to us, however, is whether we'll do that in vain or out of a prior belief. Are we prepared for an encounter with Jesus? And are we in the position we need to be to live at peace with God for eternity? Let's finish prayer. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you for this word, for this passage. There's so much here. But what's been said this morning, bless it to the hearts of those who are listening. May it stay with us throughout the week. May we always remember the gravity of our sin, but the depths and the height and the width of your love that, that promises to forgive us if we repent. Thank you for being such a wonderful God. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son that we may have peace in him. Amen.